Hello everyone and welcome to the Mimetic Exegete podcast. I'm your host Simon Skidmore. In the current season we have been working our way through the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is framed as Moses' farewell sermon to the people of Israel before they cross the Jordan to take possession of the promised land. Moses continually reminds the people to keep the law of the Lord that all might go well with them in the land of Canaan. To enjoy the Lord's blessing in the land of Canaan, the people must remain faithful to the Lord and resist the temptation to imitate the Canaanites by worshipping their gods. Alternatively, if the people worship the gods of Canaan, they will suffer the curse of mimetic rivalry and violence. We also noted that Deuteronomy marks a kind of transition, as the people are commanded to vent their collective rivalries upon their Canaanite enemies, rather than various communal scapegoats. As we shall unpack today, the reality is slightly more nuanced than that. Let's pick up our story in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 12 from verse 15. However, you may slaughter and eat meat within your towns as much as you desire, according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given you. Both clean and unclean people may eat of it, as of the gazelle and as of the deer. Only you shall not eat the blood. You shall pour it out on the earth like water. You may not eat within your towns a tithe of your grain, or your wine, or your oil, or the firstborn of your herd, or of your flock, or any of your vow offerings that you vow, or freewill offerings, or the contribution that you present, but you shall eat them before the Lord your God in the place that the Lord your God will choose, you and your son and your daughter and your male servant and your female servant and the Levite who is within your towns. You shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all that you undertake. Take care that you do not neglect the Levite as long as you live in your land. When the Lord your God enlarges your territory, as he promised you, and you say, I will eat meat because you crave meat, you may eat meat whenever you desire. If the place that the Lord your God will choose to put his name there is too far from you, then you may kill any of your herd or your flock which the Lord has given you, as I have commanded you, and you may eat within your towns whenever you desire. Just as the gazelle or as the deer is eaten, so you may eat of it. The unclean and the clean alike you may eat of it. Only be sure that you do not eat the blood, for the blood is the life, and you shall not eat the life with the flesh. You shall not eat it. You shall pour it out on the earth like water. You shall not eat it, that all may go well with you and with your children after you, when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. But the holy things that are due from you, your vow offerings, you shall take and you shall go to the place that the Lord will choose and offer your burnt offerings, the flesh and the blood on the altar of the Lord your God. The blood of your sacrifices shall be poured out on the altar of the Lord your God, but the flesh you may eat. Be careful to obey all these words that I command you, that it may go well with you and with your children after you forever, when you do what is good and right in the sight of the Lord your God. In this passage, the Israelites are allowed to eat from any of their flock or animals, so long as that animal has not already been dedicated to the Lord. Notice that this passage addresses the people's craving. 
This same word, craving, was used back in chapter 11, verse 34, when we were told that the people who had the craving were buried there at Kidroth Chatavah. In this story, the people craved meat, so the Lord sent a wind that carried many quail into the camp. And we're told that while the meat was still between their teeth, before they swallowed it even, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people and the Lord struck down the people with a great plague. Here we see this problem that perpetually presented itself throughout Israel's wilderness wanderings. These cravings continually distract the people from their ultimate goal of taking possession of the promised land. Yet now in Deuteronomy, people are enabled to indulge their cravings if they desire to eat meat. So what has changed here? Having arrived on the other side of the Jordan, Israel now inhabit Canaan, this land that apparently flows with milk and honey. In this place, there is an abundance of their livestock, their cattle, and any fruit or vegetables they would desire. In this place, because the food and abundance is so plentiful, the people can eat meat and enjoy these luxury items without the threat of generating mimetic rivalry within the land. This situation contrasts Israel's liminal experience in the desert which they experience such scarcity that even normal, boring, everyday items such as vegetables were craved and fought over. The people's prosperity and abundance in the land of Canaan allows them now to indulge their craving of food and meat without incurring the wrath of the primitive sacred. While the Israelites are now permitted to eat meat, they are still forbidden from consuming the blood of animals. It would seem that the ancient peoples believed that an animal has a life force residing in its blood. We can imagine ancient people slitting an animal's throat and watching the life drain from its body. In our studies throughout Exodus and Leviticus, we have seen that sacrificial animal blood must be manipulated in very specific ways. Even though the Pentateuch doesn't spell it out for us, this obsession with sacrificial blood and its manipulation suggests it contains some sort of magical power. Some scholars have argued that when offered in the correct manner, the life contained inside sacrificial animal blood can ransom a person's life or atone for their sins. The prohibition against consuming animal blood suggests that this practice was performed by a rival cult to that one run by the Aaronic priesthood. This rival cult consumed the blood of sacrificial animals as a means of absorbing their life force. Perhaps this rival cult hoped to receive greater health by consuming the blood, or maybe this practice was performed in the hope of receiving some other power associated with the slaughtered animal. I'm just reading an article from the Hindu News I found online dated March 11th, 2010. It's entitled Nepal Now Sees Blood Drinking Festival. It reads, Four months after Nepal came under fire from animal lovers worldwide for holding the biggest animal sacrifice fair in its southern plains, hundreds of people are now flocking to the west to participate in a festival to drink yak's blood. Men, women and children have been heading to Mayada. Ah, I think I said that wrong. Mayagdi. 
a remote district in Western Nepal to take part in the Kuan Kane festival, which literally means drinking blood. The festival sees the local yak herders making money by selling the blood of live yaks to people who queue up in hundreds to drink it in the belief that their illnesses will be cured. The article goes on to say that the yak breeder pierces the jugular vein of the hapless animal and the streaming blood is collected in cups that are then passed among the crowd who drink the warm frothy liquid unwaveringly. Now sorry if that grossed you out a bit and we don't know what's going on in the historical context behind our text but I suspect there's something like that going on. There's some sort of cult, some sort of group who have decided that by drinking the animal's blood they can be cured of their illnesses or receive some supernatural power and that's the cult that Deuteronomy is trying to suppress. Robertson Smith studied many sacrificial rituals and argued that this blood drinking ritual was a common essential part of most ancient traditions. He then also linked this tradition even to the Christian Eucharist, this idea that Jesus would say, take, drink from this cup which is my blood which is shed for you. In any case, the blood consumption rite was a means of indulging mimetic desire by chasing a particular desired object. Lest the community be tempted to imitate this practice, Deuteronomy forbids this blood rite as a means of stifling mimetic rivalry within the community and bolstering its own form of religion and worship. Let's read on now from verse 29. When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, take care that you be not ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods, that I also may do the same? You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their own children in the fire to their gods. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take away from it. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass. And if he says, Let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or the dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk so you shall purge the evil from your midst. If your brother, the son of your mother, or your son of your daughter, or the wife you embrace, or your friend, who is as your own soul, entices you secretly, saying, Let's go serve and worship other gods. 
which neither you nor your fathers have known, some of the gods of the people who are around you, whether near or far off from you, from the one end of the earth to the other, you shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you hide him, but you shall kill him. Your hand shall be the first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. You shall stone him to death with stones, because he sought to draw you away from the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And all Israel shall hear and fear, and never again do such wickedness as among you. If you hear one of your cities which the Lord your God is giving you to dwell there, that certain worthless fellows have gone out among you and have drawn away the inhabitants of their city, saying, Let us go serve other gods, which you have not known, then you shall inquire and make search and ask diligently. And if, behold, it be true, and certain that such an abomination has been done among you, you shall surely put the inhabitants of that city to the sword, devoting it to utter destruction, all who are in it, and its cattle with the edge of the sword. You shall gather all its spoil into the midst of the open square, and burn the city and all its spoil with fire, in its entirety, to the Lord your God. It shall be a heap forever." It shall not be built again. None of the devoted things shall stick to your hand, and the Lord your God may turn from the fierceness of his anger and show you mercy and have compassion on you and multiply you as he swore to your fathers if you obey the voice of the Lord your God, keeping all his statutes that I am commanding you today and doing what is right in the sight of the Lord your God. Again, Deuteronomy forbids the Israelites from imitating Canaanite worship practices, lest they become ensnared by mimetic desire and rivalry. The people are cautioned against false prophets who may entice them to worship the gods of Canaan. The Israelites must not listen to such prophets, because the Lord is testing their fealty. We have seen this idea that the Lord tests people numerous times throughout our studies in the Pentateuch. In each case, a person or people group is tested in a particular situation which happens to expose their strongest desires. For example, Israel were tested in the wilderness to see whether they would become distracted by various whims and cravings or hold fast to their desire for the promised land. This passage describes a similar test for the people of Israel living in the land of Canaan. Will they continue to worship the Lord their God with the hope of enjoying the continued blessing in the land of Canaan? Or will they indulge their whims and cravings by worshipping the gods of desire, the mimetic rivalry gods of Canaan? The temptation to forsake our ultimate desires and give in to various whims and cravings is the ongoing test that each and every one of us face every day. It could be the temptation for chocolate or a donut that distracts us from our ultimate weight loss goal. Or it could be lust that entices us to cheat on our partner and compromise the ultimate goal of a happy and fulfilled relationship. Perhaps sloth or laziness might entice us to cut corners in our work which ultimately leave us exposed as inept and inadequate. I could go on listing more and more examples but I think you get the point. Israel's test is our test. 
Will we stay the course and strive towards our ultimate desire, or will we become distracted along the way by various whims and cravings? To maintain the community's fidelity to the Lord, the false prophet must be executed. By these means, the Israelites purge the evil from their midst. This phrase, which we shall see recur numerous times throughout Deuteronomy, marks the execution of a communal scapegoat. It assumes that the community itself is pure and good, except for the evil borne by certain individuals, in this case, the false prophet. As the personification of evil, the false prophet threatens to destroy the entire community. Enticing the people to worship other gods, the false prophet divides the community and helps generate mimetic rivalry by inspiring people to engage in mimetic rivalry over the objects they commonly desire. If the false prophet is permitted to function unchecked, a mimetic crisis may ensue as everyone engages in mimetic rivalry with everyone else. To avoid this situation, the community must band together against the false prophet and execute them. By these means, the community purge the evil from their midst as they vent their collective rivalries upon a common scapegoat. Having vented their collective rivalries, the community experiences a renewed sense of peace and order. Having vilified the random false prophet, portraying them as the personification of evil, the writer then applies the same principle by focusing a little closer to home. What if one's brother, mother, daughter or wife becomes the false prophet who encourages the worship of other gods? You see what they've done here? It's easy to vilify a faceless victim and to scapegoat them as the very personification of evil. Knowing this, the writer begins by condemning an anonymous Israelite who encourages the people to worship the gods of Canaan. After vilifying this hypothetical malefactor in the eyes of their audience, the writer then puts a familiar face on the scapegoat who will inevitably be someone's son or daughter, someone's husband or wife, someone's father or mother or even brother or sister. Even if one's closest relative becomes the false prophet, no mercy or pity must be shown. In fact, the malefactor's family must be the first people to cast stones at their scapegoat relative. You see, effective scapegoating requires that the community unanimously blame their victim for their plight and see them as the very personification of evil. By becoming the first community members to throw stones at their relative, the scapegoat's family denounce their relative and declare their allegiance to the community and to the Lord. The false prophet's family become a model for other community members to imitate as they likewise throw stones at their communal scapegoat. In this way, the community band together to execute their victim without the risk of the scapegoat's family seeking vengeance for their relative's demise. Having considered the case of the relative who becomes a false prophet, the writer then focuses further afield to consider the Israelite city which has abandoned the Lord to worship other gods. In this case, the rebel city must be placed under the ban, just like Israel's Canaanite enemies. The people are commanded to totally destroy the city, which is treated as an abomination, the very locus of evil.
the rubble and the remains of the city are then all piled together in the center of town and burned with fire so that the Roma may ascend to the Lord. The ritual manner of the ban leads some translations to describe this act as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. But the text employs different terminology to the one used to describe the whole burnt offering of sacrificial animals elsewhere. Furthermore, the rebel city is destroyed as an abomination, while animals selected for whole burnt offerings must be whole and ritually pure to produce a pleasing aroma to the Lord. By way of contrast, the rebel city's destruction is never described as a pleasing aroma to the Lord. The rebel city is destroyed by fire as a means of removing the abomination and thereby purifying the land from its corrupting influence. That said, the mount where the city once stood remains desolate, suggesting that the former city location continues to be considered defiled by idolatry. This expectation differs from the Canaanite cities, which Israelites are commanded to colonize after destroying them utterly. I suspect this difference stems from the Israelite system of land allocation. In the book of Numbers, each tribe and clan are allotted a particular inheritance in the land of Canaan. Yet, if an Israelite city fell into idolatry and was devoted to destruction, we can imagine this parcel of land becoming a desired object for the surrounding clans. Suddenly left uninhabited, these clans may engage one another in mimetic rivalry over the recently raised city. To avoid it becoming an object of desire, Deuteronomy stipulates that the city must be left desolate, uninhabited, and a heap of rubble. By these means, the destroyed city also functions as a warning to others who may be tempted to imitate Canaanite worship practices. Throughout Deuteronomy, the people are encouraged to vent their rivalries upon their enemies rather than scapegoating members of their own community. Yet the boundaries of the Israelite community are not determined solely by nationality. For Deuteronomy, monolatry centered around the worship of the Lord, as commanded throughout the Pentateuch, becomes the primary boundary marker for the faithful Israelite community. The in-group of the Israelite people diligently serve the Lord by keeping his commandments, laws and statutes. Even foreigners are treated benevolently so long as they respect and adhere to the law of the Lord. In contrast, the Canaanites become a despised outgroup on account of their idolatry and must be purged from the land. When they imitate Canaanite worship practices, unfaithful Israelites are also considered part of this abominable outgroup. For this reason, the Israelites who engage in Canaanite worship or entice others to do so must likewise be purged from the land. So those who diligently worship the Lord become part of the Israelite in-group who are called to persecute and destroy the out-group on account of their infidelity to the Lord. As we continue reading, we shall see this in-group, out-group dynamic become important for understanding how communal execution and the ban function throughout the Pentateuch. Thanks again for joining me on the Mimetic Exegete podcast. If you'd like to continue the conversation, you may do so on the Mimetic Exegete Facebook group. 
Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you.